0: to use um, Adobe Audition instead of editing an iMovie like on a single track like a like an amateur great. how's it
1: going? Uh, poorly oh great I don't <laughs> get it I yeah. no, I love you I love you
2: Welcome to I Don't Get It, a podcast about performances in frozen Edmonton.
0: Very frozen. I'm Fonda. I'm Paul. And we are proud to be part of the Alberta Podcast Network. Powered, powered by, by ATB. ATB. How are you, Fonda? I'm thawing. <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah, I, I understand that. Yeah, we just came in from uh, from seeing Crave on, on the south side. Mm-hmm. I live on the north side, so mm-hmm. it was a little bit of a drive. The car did not warm up at all. <laughs> yeah,
2: that is, but that is, uh, you know, uh, but uh, one thing uh, I'll say to this uh, cold snap we're in is um, all of the art I've taken in has had really big houses, so mm-hmm. great on you, Edmonton, for getting out and saying, fuck the weather and fuck the haters, the haters here being the weather
0: getting out and seeing a lot of stuff there is um for you know the second and a half week of january there is a surprising amount of things happening especially in professional theater
2: yeah so what's uh, what's the first one we want to talk about fonda
0: well i i feel like i should talk about everybody loves robbie sure yeah so little little preamble to um, the review that I'm going to give because I feel like I can't fully review it because I didn't actually see the full show. Right. Not really going to go into why that is or or, or what happened really, but um, saw most of the show with sure. our dear friend Colleen Fian. Um, and Everybody Loves Robbie is a new play by Ellen Chorley being presented by Northern Light Theater, directed by Trevor Schmidt, um, starring JC McKenzie and uh, Richard Lee Sai. Um, if I'm pronouncing that wrong, of course, terribly, sorry. Two Performer, it's a two-hander, and it's about um, these high school kids in in drama, in their drama class, and it is just... Wonderful, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like really, really. I mean, th- frankly, seeing it with Colleen because we were theater kids in uh, in in school together. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we named her first car Patinket after Mandy Patinkin, and there's a lot of references in Everybody Loves Robbie to Sunday in the Park with George and to Mandy Patinkin and to some of this like sort of like. Older musical, like cool Sondheim era sort of stuff, sure, yeah. um, and like whether or not you should really like Hamilton because it's kind of getting old now. <laughs> wow, wow, and it
2: hasn't made it here yet. Yeah. Um, cool. What? Uh, so, so sort of like a love letter to like uh, to to high school high school drama. And and the 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 youths who are involved with that,
0: yeah, and the sort of the learning about identity and self that happens with that. I mean, the show opens with um, one of the characters sort of asking, questioning if they're gay, and then they both sort of end up questioning. Um, and it's it's it, they're both very winsome performers. I think J C McKenzie just killed this role. Absolutely, she's got this like um, fluorescent green hair and just like and they really. I also think that the design of the show just sort of really won it for you know just kind of that DIY high school drama the te- they the way they portray the teachers they had um I I really I love the show from what I saw of it I did want to give it a little bit of a shout out because uh yeah there we go <laughs> Great.
2: awesome yeah 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 for for everyone who ever went to arts trek as a youth Totally. It's
0: probably yeah. for you. Yeah, Ordevic. Uh mm-hmm. ah. and Ellen Chorley, I think went to um went to Ross Shep, which is uh, more of a sports focused school and there's kind of like a play on the um being a drama class in a sports focused school in nice. the show which uh, was also really I thought very sweet. Um, so yeah, great play by Ellen Chorley. Um, and I don't know how to end, so no, no real spoilers to be had. <laughs> great, great, uh, cool, awesome. Uh, yeah, so that's um,
2: that's everybody loves Robbie. Everybody did love Robbie. That was the thing. Uh,
0: Even when you went to theater school, you know, everybody really did love Robbie. From all sides. Oh my
2: God! <laughs> I, I realized as I as we were talking about this, the the person everyone loved in my generation of my high school's theater scene was named Robbie. So mm. <laughs> here we are.
0: In mine, I think it was Justin. Um, yeah, should. or LaWom. <laughs> out
2: to Robbie and Justin, wherever yeah. you are. <laughs>
0: um, cool, great.
2: Um, and then uh, uh, earlier this week, uh, we saw we saw Cost of Living at the Citadel. Yeah. Uh, uh, I was not prepared To continue that second.
0: Okay well do we want to? We, well it's going to be A little bit of a longer episode We actually have Quite a lot to cover So much stuff happening <laughs> In the coldest time Of the year I know um, So well we saw Cost of Living At the Citadel We just got home From Crave right. um, Which is being presented By Stone Marrow Theater At the Arts Barns uh, The backstage theater At the Arts Barns um, As part of the Fringe off season mm-hmm. um, And we also have um, To uh, to cap off The end of the episode um a review from our friends from uh, the That's a Thing podcast. Mm. Uh, Karen and Elizabeth are going to uh, fill us in on the Winter Shakespeare Festival that's right. happening. Right. Cool.
2: Cost of Living. It's a uh, Pulitzer Prize winning show um, uh, from a few years ago. Part of the, the Citadel Mainstage uh, main series. It's a four-hander. And it sort of looks at... Um, uh two two pairings i guess um couples is maybe a strong a strong term but it sort of has these four characters and and how their lives uh their lives intertwine in, in probably about seven scenes overall it's sort of one one intermissionless show that probably runs like an hour 40.
0: Mm-hmm. which for the citadel is very rare to have an intermissionless show right on the shocker stage
2: yeah no less Two of the uh, members of the cast uh, and the, the characters they portray uh, are, are have disabilities. Um, and so it's looking at sort of these dynamics um, in a few different ways. We have sort of um, uh, someone uh, with cerebral palsy uh, who, who has sort of hired this other character to sort of um, be... Uh, Uh, help them with some of their basic amenities in their life. Uh, And the other one is sort of like uh, a couple who have had a very, um, uh, who are separated, uh, but uh, one of them is, um, is mostly paralyzed um, and, and sort of their, their fraught relationship as they sort of uh, encounter each other and try and, uh, stay in each other's orbits, I guess would be a way of summarizing those two sort of pairings and, and more sort of happens that, that, that connects those world. It starts with this very beautiful monologue from, uh, the, uh, Eddie, uh, the, uh, who's played by Ashley Wright, who's sort of the, um, the married man and sort of that combination, um, about just sort of like, I guess, uh, loneliness. He's at a bar. He's, so you're, he's talking to you and, uh, and sort of his life, and it really paints this picture of him as this character, and and this world, and these things he's been going through, and really sort of introduces some of some of the deeper themes of of, of the play before we get into these uh, pairings. What did you think, Fonda?
0: Yeah, I'm. I I thought that the way that the two sort of sets of relationships played out, um, in terms of the physical intimacy and the and not the not the desire necessarily, but the necessity to be physically close and physically. Um, There for someone uh, was was such a such a prominent sort of uh, thing that was happening visually in the play. But when in the speech, it didn't really get talked about at all um so i thought that was really interesting you know so eddie and Annie are this married couple who are separated um and then um something happens an accident i believe a traffic accident mm-hmm. of some kind and Annie becomes um paralyzed quadriplegic really um and so her journey going through um starting to figure out the limits of her body again and and that sort of thing um in the earlier parts of the show, it comes out that Eddie is uh, seeing someone else and that their relationship is, you know. I mean, Ani is filled with this anger that is it's so incredible to see from someone who can't move their body. Mm-hmm. She, she's, you know, she's in a chair, not not a stationary chair, mind you. But um, she is just this incredibly animated and fiery um fearsome character really that um is just like filled with this just real real personal anger and and almost vengeance against Eddie because of um not that he's abandoned her since this has happened but just that they this are... has happened to her right. um and he's there and she's right. kind of like working it out
2: right yeah and, <laughs> and he's like he's trying to just be there for the this person but is you know, uh, like in, a, in this very beautiful human portrayal, is like, eh, ah, not great. Not a great <laughs> dude. Doesn't really get it. Doesn't really understand how, where, where are some of the limitations and when he's like stepping over a line and, and some of those things. And meanwhile, on the other side, uh, we have, um, uh, Jess and, uh, John, uh, these two, um, Characters, yeah, one and one who uh sort of uh John is uh again in in a chair and and, and has cerebral palsy, but is sort of at a at grad school um is this very uh very intelligent person and uh, and Jess is uh has taken this ad, this wanted ad, this help-wanted ad to help him with some things and this friendship that sort of evolves between them and this dynamic and and then how I guess their their different expectations for how it goes and how those shift uh in an unexpected way. Mm-hmm. Um the show had two good guests in it uh, yeah. <laughs> one and in, one involved a bathtub and one uh, one involved the reveal of sort of uh, a piece of uh, uh John and Jess's story mm-hmm. um, but uh, but I think just uh, you mentioned sort of the necessity of of uh, of connection and those sorts of things and I think in in this side of the story it plays out as like um, the things we do and say to each other and the things we don't and the ways that like some of that information um when we can't be open or we don't feel comfortable being open with each other um has ramifications because mm-hmm. people make assumptions and and things are assumed as to the reason why people are doing things when when you mm. don't really understand that and it um uh dramatically as a as a play gives you some gut punches i yeah. think in in like oh
0: no. Yeah. I mean, particularly between John and Jess, um, who don't know each other as well mm-hmm. as Annie and Eddie do. Um, and just I mean, there so there there is a there there are scenes where um the 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 characters are like helping each other or helping um one of the other character bathe. Mm-hmm. Um and, and so when Jess is helping John, you know, It's so funny because the scene where they have where Jess is giving John a shower and a shave is just something that you kind of like as a couple, if you've ever been in a long term relationship and you're sitting and you're with someone and, you know, you're in front of all of their bits and like things are happening, you know. Everybody's kind of going through the motions of what they have to do every day. Yeah. Um, but the conversation that they're having has absolutely nothing to do with what's happening on stage. Yeah. Like there is a nude man on the Citadel stage, you know, and a woman bathing him, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, 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 it is, and it is not talked about at all. It is just something that is happening while they're kind of like bantering on about something funny that happened to her at work the night before. Right, right, right you know, like there are different types of bodies and this happens in so many different ways. And right, it just, right. the way that they, the way that it was staged and presented was so, it seemed effortless and natural. And like, you weren't even really thinking about it. That uh, it was, um, in that way, it was refreshing to see. But then to contrast that with the, the sort of actual emotional painfulness of the bath scene between right. Eddie and Ani. Right,
2: which is, is sort of them trying to like, uh any sort of broaching this relationship and and what it is and what it is now and what it can be and them sort of talking about it and sort of the ways they their feelings come out and it's sort of this like beautiful and sad and and very human and warm like uh and sort of grounded in these two characters and and how they care about each other. Um, because they do, and they have this fraught sort of past, but, but they've been there for each other for so much, mm-hmm. uh, been part of that for better or worse. Um, and so, you know, to have that intimacy of just like a span of time with someone, um, and to see that play out in, in a moment was, uh, yeah, like the, the parallels of these two, um, pairings was, um, uh, it was lovely in the different ways they broached intimacy and necessity of, of intimacy and that sort of thing.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that, I don't know, maybe it's just because the um, the movie Marriage Story has come out and right. is getting a lot of play right now. And Seems. yeah, so just thinking about that sort of that, that, you know, that, that divorce story or that almost divorce that happens in this. And it was, it was, I felt like it was very touching and very beautiful to see the kind of arc that the relationship goes through. And, um, I mean, yeah, I think you should go see the show. So maybe we won't talk about really where the relationship ends. Even. The, yeah. But, but, yeah, we, yeah. yeah. Uh,
2: there's like, uh, there's a scene at the end, um, that sort of connects these two stories in a way, um, mm-hmm. characters who haven't met before meet. Um, and it's again, sort of brings us back to this, like world of like people who in this moment need each other, but it's not, it's not easy. None of this is easy. Um, you, Especially because if we have have gone through these motions uh, and done this with people before, um, we can put guards up. And and how do we how do we find that? How do we find that uh, intimacy when we need it so much <laughs> um, to survive as people and in life and socially and emotionally and all those things? Um, and it doesn't uh, you know, it doesn't um, give you an easy, a nice we did it uh, sort of ending. But I think um, it sort of raises those questions and makes you ask you to sit with them.
0: Yeah, it was beautiful. It was beautiful because we're all just like. Broken people who meet each other. <laughs> That's what the Pulitzer is all about. Oh, baby. the Pulitzer! Yeah, so um, beautiful play by Martina Majok or Majok Um, uh, the 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 cast of four in this was absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly liked uh, uh, John Christopher Ambrosiano, um, and uh, Bahare Yaragi, Yagar- mm-hmm. um, as Jess. Loved the character of Jess. That was just beautiful. Directed by Ashley Corican. Uh Yeah, I, th- I, I that was a great show. Yeah, totally. Cool. Great. Sounds like uh, probably time for an ad, Fonda. I think so.
2: This episode is supported in part by the Edmonton Community Foundation and the Well Endowed Podcast. Their most recent episode tours iHuman Youth Society and discusses the amazing ways they offer support to vulnerable youth. They also meet Steve Finkelman and Jane Cardillo, who created an endowment fund to support iHuman in memory of their son, David. To listen and to find out more about Edmonton Community Foundation's projects, head to the thewellendowedpodcast.com. Uh, That brings us up to speed and uh, place uh, in our night, uh, Fonda, uh, because we just got back from uh, Stone Marrow Theatre's production of Crave, a play by Sarah Kane.
0: Yes. Who is Sarah
2: Kane, Paul? Sarah Kane is a British playwright um, who sort of came to prominence in the 90s with very um, uh, plays that were seen as quite shocking um, for, for violence and the topics they broached and how they broached those topics. Um, and, and sort of Crave is in, in the later period of her plays, uh, Sarah Kane died by suicide, uh, in the late nineties. And this is sort of her second last play, uh, Crave, um, which she originally produced under a different name because she wanted it to be seen without the stigma of sort of, um, some of the work she'd already done.
0: Yeah. She had a pseudonym for this one. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, it's also uh, maybe a bit more abstract than some of the work of hers that came before it. it's It's not grounded in sort of naturalism at all. Um, we sort of have four characters in the script who are only named by a letter, um, who sort of are all connected. Um, it's been described as sort of like four four versions or four parts of a broken psyche, um, talking to us, talking to each other, um talking. Um, and working through these little fixations, these little, um, these little moments that are the sort of things you dwell on in your life at three in the morning, Mm -hmm. um, that keep you up and your mind sort of circles and circles without being able to maybe, um, get away from sometimes
0: mm-hmm. yeah you could really I feel sort of imagine the mental chatter between you know like the the warring sides of your own personality and this in in the way that they were talking so cast of four mm-hmm. uh directed by Perry Grattan um with choreography by Ainsley Hilliard mm-hmm. so there was a lot of because the the script is quite abstract there was a lot of movement sort of based um I feel that the it was it kind of scored the narration because there was really there was there wasn't um really uh, any sound design
2: right 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 Um, there was um, every show of this run is opening with a different sort of musical act Um, so show up for showtime and see uh, see a band or an artist do a couple songs in this case it was a member of the cast it was uh, Alex Dawkins Um, who is fabulous beautiful voice amazing voice great songwriting um but then the, uh, the show itself yes yeah, is, is about these words and sort of these these interwoven um monologues that feel very internal but address each other address us address nobody and and everybody and um you know the director's note uh quote from the play that perry gretton chose was uh, love can only love can save me but uh, love has destroyed me mm-hmm. and there's all these sort of um lines like that these sort of fragmented but like very potent Uh, Thoughts um, Mm -hmm. that were sort of racing around these characters' minds and sort of um, uh, affecting how they're looking at relationships and what they want and what is the world and how can you be happy in this world and uh, all these horrible things that have happened and all these strange things that have happened. There's this sort of um, thrown away aside about uh, 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 seeing. someone's grandparents um like coming in on them like having a very intimate moment in the kitchen Mm -hmm. and then this character uh telling their mother about this years later and the mother being like oh i know that is my memory i had that
0: yeah Uh, you 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 weren't
2: born yet i was pregnant with you i didn't know it yet but uh that was something that happened to me Mm -hmm. so these little moments these sort of perplexing uh contrasts or um shit what's the word um not abstracts um Contradictionary sort of moments in your mind or these things that happen where you're like, you can't necessarily work past it, whether it's like Mm -hmm. a personal thought or something that you've experienced.
0: Yeah. And you can it's almost like you're trying to come to terms with like what might be the truth based on someone's memory or someone's because we think about this when we talk about memoir all the time is like, what is memoir and what is factual um, and the difference between like the way that you remember something and the way that other people remember the same thing or, you know, what actually happened. Um, But she has like the script has all of these, like, like you said, these sort of like beautiful sort of like mic drops in it, you know, just kind of like, like no one survives life. Yeah. Which is so true. <laughs> I
2: mean, it's it's spoiler to everyone. <laughs> oh, <fuck. laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, but I and I think it's, um, you know, uh, a lot of Sarah Kane's work um, I've seen. Strangely enough, there was a production of Crave like 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was also a production at the same time, 10 years ago of uh, sir Kane's last play, 448 Psychosis. Um, and her work it, it does deal with extremes. And if you if you read Blasted or ever get the chance to see Blasted, which is sort of like her big her big play, mm-hmm. um, Buddies in Bad Times in Toronto produced it a couple years ago. I don't think it gets many productions these days. It's very violent in a hyper real way. It's sort of comparing like domestic violence to war. Mm -hmm. And so it starts in this very domestically violent situation. And then the realism sort of explodes, but it becomes even more graphic. Um, uh, Famously, uh, ending with like someone's eyes getting sucked out on stage, um, which is, you know, a thing, nothing a to see. Uh, she did a, a play called Phaedrus Love, which sort of inverts the Greek tragedy, including the violence happens on stage rather than off stage. But I think, um, even when we move into sort of this later period of Sarah Kane's work, where we're looking at these more like emotionally complicated stories and, and they become less, Uh, less play feeling in terms of a plot and a narrative and characters and, and, and that sort of thing and become about these thoughts and these ruminating on these thoughts and exploring these thoughts. Um, They're still extreme. They're still, um, but not a, uh, there's violence, there's beauty. There's these sort of profound thoughts and moments of loneliness and vulnerability and uh, aggression and, um you she was writing in the 90s there were things in the 90s you're like ah oh, yeah that flew in the 90s that was <laughs> that was a way of explaining talking about this now it feels a little shocking for the sake of it but at the time was um you know very very provocative and trying to be upfront about these things mm-hmm. and and a lot of the issues and things that are come up in in crave, I think are still things we we mull over. We mull over what is the point of it all. We mull over um, love and the fraught ways it plays out in our lives, and mm-hmm. um, or beautiful moments. These beautiful moments that pop up in that too, um, and so I think I think it still has uh, like a power. I think. I, I like her plays quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I think there's such a potency to them. Uh, even when we move away from the sort of realism parts of the sort of earlier versions. And even then, they were always like, she would write the wildest stage directions. Like something incredibly yeah. violent mm-hmm. would happen and in the stage direction would be like, and a sunflower bursts from the floor and blooms
0: above <laughs> the characters. And you're like, fuck. <laughs> what, what a thing. Yeah, I think one of the things I noticed uh, kind of... Sitting with sitting with the words in the script after a while, it's just like you know this this play was still written by a fairly young person. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah Kane died when she was twenty eight, I think, and um, you know, and and the cast that performs this play is also quite young, um, and I think that also you know I'm, I'm kind of like a proponent now of seeing like actors with a lot with more experience and groundedness sometimes in, in certain roles to be able to kind of bring what the words need mm-hmm. um, and I think the cast did a really good job with this uh, knowing that this script is not written with a lot of help um, oh. like there's no stage directions in this in this and um, and it's kind of the casting um, and the characters of ABC and M are sort of less up to the the company really to determine yeah. and uh, and I think that you know it's uh, I really like the way that the um, the set lent to the staging mm-hmm. um, so the production design uh, was by Elise CM Jason. And, uh, yeah, I think that it kind of, um, it allowed the care. it was sort of like a four diamonds, kind yeah, of... um
2: at different heights, more or less, and mm-hmm. everyone was sort of in their, their diamond.
0: Yeah, and it allowed them to sort of, like, play on top of and around each other and intersect in ways, but not really. Like, they were all still very separate mm-hmm. in the end. Um, and, yeah, uh, I, mean, I don't know, maybe it was also because she did the set right beforehand, but Alex, da- uh, Alex Dawkins really... Um, really killed it. I felt like she, like the the performer had the, um, the authenticity and the groundedness to really make it, make it all land. I, I felt and really, uh, really appreciated.
2: Right. And I feel like some of the, some of Crave sort of gives the character of a, a lot of, um, uh, a lot of the, uh, like all of them have intense thoughts in this play. All of them are working through intense things. And I think um, uh, that character in particular has a lot of intense things or that they're experiencing. Um, and yeah, I, I would agree. I, I thought that that performance was very, uh, handled all that with, with, uh, grace and clarity and sharpness mm-hmm. that you hope sort of you, when you're looking at a script that, that is, is looking at all of these things, um, uh, has, uh, I think it's really interesting as well. The dynamics of like, uh, we refer to them as characters. They're listed sort of by a, a letter. Are they parts of the same person? Um, if so, it's really interesting the ways they interact, um, that sort of suggests these moments or these other relationships broader, but also when you think about maybe just like four parts of a person's mind, um, speaking at each other and with each other and, and negotiating and, and threatening and, and, um, discussing, uh, it's, it's still sort of like. Lands with these really interesting tangles of thoughts that don't necessarily sort themselves out, but and when portrayed in that way, sort of give you uh, feel very alive. Where we have these four characters who are four figures who are sort of like uh, bouncing these off each other rather than just out to us. When we have these sort of moments of even within these four, these connections and these moments, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was it was pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it was interesting that there was no no sound design. I think um, you know, their sound is referenced uh, in in the play. Um, one of the characters is wearing a Joy Division shirt, and other characters wearing a Wears shirt. Um, but it was just the words were the sounds we had as mm. far as the actual uh, show went.
0: Yeah, yeah, I kind of, I thought that was interesting. The choice to have a musical set before the show and then the show only with spoken text. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that, I mean, that I feel that also the poetry was quite dense and there was a lot happening in every moment um, throughout. So I uh, don't want to say what I th- think... M- you know, a complex sound design would have or might have lent to it, right. but um, but yeah, it was uh, it was interesting to just sort of like listen and hear. Like you could have closed your eyes and listened to the different voices, mm-hmm. um, and just kind of um, even even visually, you know, like taken taken that element away and just thinking about the text it was it was still violent and aggressive and yeah. and like and I, I mean by by 2020 standards maybe not super shocking but yeah still quite meaningful and 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 really yeah i it, it, it got the wheels turning i think sure mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah 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 and, and yeah i think
2: uh, the cast uh, we already mentioned uh, Alex Dawkins but also uh, uh, Samantha Jeffrey uh, Gabriel Richardson and uh, Sarah Emsley um all sort of uh, the ways they sort of found characters within this very sparse text and how those animated and um and interacted um, made made this very sparse uh, text compelling i think even without um some of those sounds sort of like you were saying i'm not necessarily saying that like a sound design would have been better um cuz a uh, saying anything's better is like who the fuck knows um but also like at the end of the day, it is about these, like the show is about these thoughts and these thoughts that engage with each other and interact with each other, but don't necessarily reconcile. Uh, They just sort of express uh, and try and reconcile and find frustration in their inability to reconcile or to have moments of something, but then, but then for it to get away again um, is uh, yeah. Sort of gives it, Um, means that the the words ultimately are are sort of what is the potency. These are the things we have to be, that we're we're to take from this are these thoughts. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, and you have to kind of like, just sort of like sit and listen to the dialogue really, because there's not, um, even between the characters, there's no physical interaction they make eye contact but no one leaves from their spot um and there's no touching throughout the Mm -hmm. show either like they're they are all kind of like of their own universe almost so
2: except there's these there are a few little moments where some character will say something or or start to monologue and everyone else will sort of like uh would be affected in the same way their motions would sync up Mm -hmm. it would be this moment of like choreography um, were being affected by whatever was currently being uh, revealed or said or or set on stage. Um but, yeah, that was those were the closest we had to, like, actual physical connections. It was just like, but there was still distance Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. there was like synchronization but there wasn't uh yeah like physical actual connection um Mm -hmm. but yeah that's kind of interesting in the way of like scoring the text it was more scored with movement Mm -hmm. than it was with sound um and the text of course just animated really by by voice Mm -hmm. um so yeah well so that was uh Sarah Kane's Crave, uh, produced by Stone Marrow Theater, directed by Perry Gratton. Right.
2: Uh, um, we only saw one night of it, but uh, Tab CA is doing all the music programming, and uh, the putting Alex Stockins on that stage was great. Um, so great, great on that too.
0: Yeah, awesome. Okay, well, um, well, how about we do? How about we do another ad, Paul? Sounds great. Artists are often underserved at banks because they don't fit a typical profile. Theater professionals like Michael and Nicole Bradley kept getting turned down when they applied for a mortgage. Then they found ATB's Branch for Arts and Culture. The branch offers a different approach to banking and lending that caters to the unique situations of people working in creative industries. Now Michael, Nicole, and their son Luke have a home they love. To see more of their inspiring story, visit atb.com Bradleys and visit atb.com thebranch The Branch to find out how ATB's Branch for Arts and Culture can support your career in the arts. All right, so we have another uh, special thing to drop into the episode for you this week. Um, the Winter Shakespeare Festival is happening for the first time in Edmonton. Woo. Yeah, yeah.
2: And, uh, and Karen and Elizabeth from uh, That's a Thing, uh, a different podcast on the Alberta Podcast Network, uh, went and saw the two uh, Shakespeare shows they're doing uh, as part of the Winter Shakespeare spe- uh, Festival, which were uh, this year, uh, are this year, Julius Caesar and Midsummer Night's Dream, which in this weather feels... Necessary. Feels like an
0: absolute dream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's go to that now.
3: So for Christmas, Mom got me tickets to the Winter Shakespeare Festival. This is the first year. It's put on by um the Malachite Theater. And so we saw a Midsummer Night's Dream and Julius Caesar through our pass. And what did you think, Mom?
1: Overall, globally, I would say it was spectacular. Yes, I'm a very good present giver. (laughs) Yes, say that you're amazing. And we went into this knowing that it was going to be good because we've seen the Malachites before, right? We saw Macbeth last year, and we enjoyed it a great deal. We did, and that prompted us to, or that prompted me to say, well, if one Shakespeare is good, two is twice as good. (laughs) They do it at Holy Trinity Church. And you're right in the middle of the action. Yep,
3: they're site-specific shows. So Mm -hmm. the whole set and blocking is designed around that structure. And so if you're sitting on one of the pews, is that what they're called? I'm Mm -hmm. not a divine (laughs) woman. Um, Like somebody might sit next to you who's in the show. Somebody might stand on there. You're always in the thick of it, looking around to see where the actor's gone next. It's quite the experience.
1: A Midsummer Night's Dream. It's the usual, right? There's... The usual, and yet not the usual, one might say. Yeah, so the two pairs of lovers and complications ensue, and you know that in the end, all's well that ends well. That's a different show, but that happens in all of them. (laughs) Uh, We also have this other plot of the fairies, Oberon and Titania, who are um, fighting over a changeling child. Yes. And... Oberon has Titania bewitched into falling in love with Nick Bottom, one of the actors in the play that's going to be put on for the Royals. And you know how Midsummer Night's Dream goes, right?
3: Yes. (laughs) The one that everybody's seen at least once, we can call this one.
1: Yeah, the comedy that lots of people have seen.
3: Like I I know I've seen it, I think, twice and done it for theater camp. So Mm -hmm. I'm very familiar with this play. Mm -hmm. And I was still amused and entertained and getting jokes the whole time which is an achievement when you've seen the same comedy that many
1: times for sure so. and i think they they edit the script down so that it's two acts and it's it moves quickly which is good and holy trinity because yeah. those pews are hard on the bum <laughs> they don't <laughs> want to be there forever but just really skillfully edited, I thought. Like, uh, there was no confusion about what was going on. Um, It it was fast, it was comprehensible at all times, and so funny, like, I was, like, laughing a lot.
3: Yeah, this goes for both plays. They do a beautiful job of communicating things they've cut in the script through physical gesture and comedy. Mm -hmm. And so even if you realize that a speech you've heard before is missing, you, you, you will also understand, I understand where that happened yeah. in this version.
1: Yeah, or what the relationship between those people is or or why that's funny
3: or whatever. The visual yeah. language is incredible. The costuming, the blocking, the choreography, all of it.
1: Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I have seen productions of A Midsummer Night's Dream where it took me quite a while to remember the difference between Helena and Hermia and Demetrius and Lysander mm-hmm. and that this... I had no trouble telling the lovers apart. Yeah. Now maybe I'm just dumb about Shakespeare.
3: <laughs> I think you're like willfully dumb as soon as you're watching a romantic comedy. Like you, it, it's it's, not my yeah. Deal, it's yeah. hard to win you over to that. Uh, <laughs> Um, Going back to Bottom for a second, they Mm -hmm. had a female Bottom playing Bottom as a man, Monica Mattaford, and you said that it was the best Bottom you've ever seen. She was the best
1: Bottom I've ever seen. So that just to remind you, Nick Bottom is like this hammy actor who's...
3: It's a subtweet of somebody (laughs) Shakespeare knew. There's no way it's not
1: and and he 's very enthusiastic, and he wants to play all the parts, but he gets to play Pyramus, the lover who kills himself in grief over uh, thisbe and um she Monica Mattaford just was so hilarious at depicting with some affection mm-hmm. for him, like like I got the feeling that she was not, she's not she 's not anti bottom she wasn 't like trying to be <laughs> mean to him, but she was just like. Showing, like, She
3: understood who he was as a yeah, character.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's very sympathetic, but also really, really, really funny. Yeah. And all the actors were great. Yeah. ta But we like Bottom yeah. the most.
3: We Bottom. Uh,
1: and Danielle LaRose. Right. That, Danielle LaRose has the dual um, role, which is typ- typically, typically doubled of Titania and... Hippolyta. Hippolyta. Um, Yeah, and she's...
3: She's pretty and strong (laughs) and angry and I am gay. And that's all you guys really need to know about that.
1: Uh, (laughs) Even cis ladies will appreciate her. She's a force
3: of nature, so watch out for that performance as well.
1: Yeah. Okay, so that was Midsummer Night's Dream. Yes. And then Julius Caesar. Yes. Again, stripped down to its bare essence, but... uh, still catching everything that's happening in the yeah. usual julius caesar plot which the first half is the senators plotting to and then killing caesar and then the second half is what happens after that
3: that's how time works mom. <laughs> good work uh, more specifically what happens after that the mourning of caesar and then ultimately the battle between the two rivals um, mark antony and brutus
1: yeah um And not like physical, actually war battle, but also the battle of words Mm -hmm. where they both speak at Caesar's funeral. And you can see the contrast in the appeal to reason and the appeal to emotion.
3: Yeah, a a very philosophical piece for Billy Shakes, one might say.
1: (laughs) 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 So what did you think of this performance?
3: Uh, I enjoyed it very much. I've never seen this one perform live. I studied it in grade 10 English class, <laughs> which for me was recent. Uh, <laughs> but
1: I also um, studied it in high school yeah. English, and for me it was not recent.
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, again, uh, the differentiation of characters was huge here. When you have this many people in a play, which is necessary, I'd argue for a play like Julius Caesar because it's politics and scheming, and you kind of—if you're gonna have an evil group, then you have to have a group of evil, right? Um, the men all kind of turn beige and become one dude. Yeah, uh, they did a very good job. The actors of when they didn't have dialogue to clarify who their characters were, it was in their bodies, their gesture, the way they talked. Um, that was all there and mm-hmm. excellent.
1: Uh, I think the other interesting thing about seeing Shakespeare in repertory, like when they're the same company is doing two different shows at the same mm-hmm. time, like we see during the Free Will Shakespeare Festival in the summer, is you really appreciate the acting ability when you see someone play something completely different in one play and the other. And mm-hmm. um, there was some impressive examples of that here, too.
3: Yes. Another interesting thing, we know that casting, regardless of gender, has been all the rage for Shakespeare lately. This company actually notes in all of its marketing, it's the first Canadian company to cast a woman as Henry V in the play Henry V, Mm -hmm. wherein there is Henry V. (laughs) Um, But what we haven't seen a lot of is that kind of casting going both ways. So women playing... Male characters and men playing female characters. So not only were both Brutus and Mark Antony played by women, um, Brutus was played by Miranda Allen and Antony was played by Nikki Holowski, but also Portia was played by Andrew Cormier. Yeah. And uh, that's the first time we've ever seen a production. That took that gender in different casting both ways. Yeah, and he did a very good job.
1: It was it was a very moving performance, and it was not like so often when men are playing female roles. It's for laughs, right? It's drag or um, like burlesque or send up. But this, it was it was just like a genuine and moving performance.
3: Yeah. Well, so, it, it was done the same way it's done for the women playing yeah, male characters. Exactly. And like that proves that that can work, mm-hmm. and it totally should be done mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it shouldn't be a weird double standard just to get the number of women in your performance up like it isn't just a stunt, it's a viable thing you can do yeah, I feel like
1: I got the sense that they had like a, a casting process that was truly, truly, truly gender blind, and Andrew Cormier did the best portion. Right?
3: yeah. <laughs> And he did the best portion.
1: <laughs> Brutus and Antony, as you mentioned, were played by um, really talented apt, uh, women who we've seen elsewhere. So yes, it took it, and I, maybe it's a, a, <laughs> a, 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 a testament to how good they are at acting. But it took us like a long time to say, "I've seen her before. Where did I see her?" Yeah, but we saw Miranda who played Brutus as um, Minerva, queen of the handcuffs. Yes, that's yes. what it's called. Right? <laughs> at the Fringe in the summer. And we saw Nikki Holowski in Richard III at Studio Theater. Yeah. You thought the staging worked extra well for Julius Caesar. What was effective about like the barrels and the crates and the kind of like junkyard aesthetic of this place?
3: Well, I just think that it's more about the way they used and changed the set. They It, it was a far more active set in this one, actually, than it was... Um, In Midsummer Night's Dream, which is not a critique, it's just a statement. Um, But they had a lot of visual language to illustrate where we were at. So a lot of visual unity when Caesar was in power, and then division when he was not. And then just generally, the way they also um, created open space in order to choreograph the battlefield. The battle choreography was also very good here. The fight and intimacy director was Sam Jeffrey. And uh, the way that they handled fighting without having a lot of boring, the same sort motions actors know how to do back and forth <laughs> over and over again. There was a lot of shield based choreography, yeah. which is very different. And also um, it's noisier, which creates a more auditory experience uh, because uh, it's an old echoey church. Yeah. Any actions you take that make a lot of sound have a huge impact. So knowing that about your set and then being able to take advantage of that is huge.
1: Yeah. So, what you should do is go to wintershakespeare dot com and then you can see what they're up to when you can get tickets to the show. you can get a Flexi pass, so you can go to both shows like we did, or you can just go one to one or the other. But if you can possibly spare the time and money to go to both, it's just so cool to see these really talented actors do such a wide variety of roles, both within each show often and then between the two shows.
3: Absolutely. Go support the fledgling Festival so they can do more Shakespeare next year. Yes, more Shakespeare. <laughs>
0: all right thank you uh, to Karen and Elizabeth for uh, going and seeing some more hey, shows hey. like I mean we covered what well, we covered like lots of shows this week Paul that's right. that's.
2: Uh, that's- so many shows. That's five shows.
0: Five shows, one episode. In the coldest week of the year. Good God. Like, like we're 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 rolling. Okay. So um, well, what? So let's give a little bit of a recap. What's happening, Paul? What's happen- What can people go see? Uh, Everybody loves
2: Robbie is being presented by Northern Light Theater. Uh, you can see that at the ATB Arts Barns until January
0: twenty fifth. And Cost of Living runs at Citadel Theatre until February 2nd. Uh, Crave, being presented by Stone Marrow Theatre, is at the Backstage Theatre
2: until January 26th.
0: Up next week, Diavolo, uh presented by Alberta Ballet. It's a company from Los Angeles. Uh being presented at the Jubilee Auditorium January twenty-first and twenty-second.
2: Um uh from January twenty-second until February ninth, we have Happy Birthday, Baby Jay, uh, a new play by Nick Green, uh which is playing at Shadow Theater at the Varscona.
0: And the next Dirt Buffet Cabaret is curated by Jordan Sabo. That's at Spazio Performativo on January 23rd.
2: The Winter Shakespeare Festival, So Julius Caesar and Midsummer Night's Dream, are running until February 2nd.
0: Uh yeah, and so there's lots of other things still coming up within the season. Chinook just dropped their uh, lineup there online at ChinookSeries.ca, I think. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we wanted to take just a moment to um, let you know that our other podcast, The Tale of Two Weeklies, was nominated for a Canadian Podcast Award. We made this shortlist for Outstanding Documentary. Hell yeah! yeah. Cool. Um that's your Edmonton Heritage Council money well spent. <laughs> Thank you
2: Edmonton Heritage Council. Thank you for that.
0: So if you haven't listened to t- A Tale of Two Weeklies yet, you can um, check out that limited run podcast. It's just seven episodes. Give it a listen at uh tale of two
2: It's about the alt weeklies that used to be in Edmonton, a view magazine and uh C magazine, a uh, view weekly, I guess if you want. I worked there. I should have got its name right. But uh, here we are. <laughs> it was a magazine. It was technically View Weekly Magazine was was the full title, right. but anyway, they're gone now. And there was a huge history, and it was fun and dramatic and sad and wonderful to uh, to recap with about forty people. Uh, tale of Two Weeklies. Yeah.
0: yeah, and we wrote a documentary about it. Woo! Great. Anyhow, all right. Um, well, thanks everyone for listening. Um, please uh, wear your wool socks and go out and see some shows. Yeah. Great. Bye. I Don't Get It is a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or check us out on albertapodcastnetwork.com or the CKUA radio app.
2: I Don't Get It is recorded on Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton, Alberta in the Edmonton Community Foundation's podcast studio.
0: Our theme music is Mountain Time by Ghibli and you can find more of Ghibli's music by going to ghibli.bandcamp.com. I
2: Don't Get It is produced by Andrew Paul, Fonda Mithrush, and Paul Blenhoff here, thank you.